Joining us now, our good friend, Mr. Al Bat from somewhere near Heartland, Minnesota. Al, how are things there? Are they warming up and melting? You know, it's, uh, boy, I say this every year. I think it's really nice when the the ice leaves the lakes. I get all excited about that. But it's, it is wonderful when the ice leaves my driveway. It's, <laughs> yes. it's a much bigger celebration here at the Bat Cave when that happens. It, I was out walking this morning, you know, and I didn't have to do that uh, Minnesota shuffle where we there's certain areas where we just don't raise our feet very much because it's, uh, it's icy and it's chronically icy because it's there every year. And, uh, well, we put, uh, we don't have a paved driveway, but we put gravel in and do all all these kind of things that you're supposed to do, but there's just spots where ice uh, accumulates like weeds in a field. There's spots always in a field where weeds seem to have their parties, and there's places in my driveway where ice just wants to be, and it is there. So oh, I want to thank uh, Matthew Hayes of Mankato, who listens while pruning 9,000 grapevines awesome. in Mankato. <laughs> Yeah, boy, nine thousand. I can't, I can't even imagine. Why. I'm a gardener, and uh, Karen's a gardener way beyond me. And boy, nine thousand grapevines. And I'm assuming there's quite a bit of pruning that goes into each now, one of those. I know this is the time of year to prune a lot of shrubs and trees and things. So it must be the time for grape grapes as well. Now, I mean, I'm not, I'm not an expert on that in any manner. So I'm guessing he's doing it now. Correct. Yeah, and uh, I don't know much about grapes. The only grapes I grow are wild grapes, and I don't do that intentionally. They right. just come all on their own. So I don't know much of anything. You know, I've done the uh, the wine tour in California where uh, they take you to, and uh, somebody walks you through and tells you everything. And hey, I'm probably looking at birds <laughs> flying around and things instead because there was a lot of birds in there. And I... I jotted down some notes, but I don't think I uh, kept most of them. You know, I go through and kind of yeah. cross things off. So it was a, I, it was a fun tour and learning about it. And of course, we all got to sample a little bit. And they, uh, they give you now, you will notice there'll be a slight taste of oak and a little bit of cruelty in this wine. And they. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I don't know. I just don't have those taste buds that are talented enough to detect all those things that I should detect in those. So I, uh, but it was, uh, thank you, Matthew. I appreciate you. I saw a turkey vulture on March 15th, not in Hinkley, Ohio, but here in Minnesota. So those are baby steps into spring. And there was no fiery horse with a speed of light and no cloud of dust and no hearty hi-yo silver and it is high yo silver hey, there's always an argument whether it's high ho or high yo and it's it's high uh, but the lone common grackle continues to saunter about the yard with his faithful companion a winter weary starling a deer with an injured foot comes regularly to feed under the bird feeder right outside my window and the starling lands on the deer's back and the bird had always wanted a pony, I'm guessing. Starlings are mimics, and they can be taught to talk. And I imagine this one saying, giddy up, but it, uh, well, it doesn't work. Well, do they land on the deer to get uh, bugs or anything? Because I know, like, in the summer, the, the there's um, birds that will go on cows to get those grubs and things that are in the cow's back. So is there a reason they land on the deer? 
Uh, I suppose there could be, but I think it just lands on a deer because a deer is there. Oh. And it just says, well, there's a nice perch for me, and get up there and look around. And I watch it, it gets up there, and it preens a little bit, and one day it was singing from the deer's back, and the deer didn't pay any attention to it whatsoever. It was busily trying to find something to eat in the snow, and it, but it was a, a fun thing to watch the interaction between uh, two different species like that. And when they kind of cleared out, I filled the feeders with black oil sunflower seeds, and I found that this nutritious seed to be appealing to the birds in my locale. And somebody, and I, I don't remember where, somebody said house sparrows are overwhelming her feeders. And you might switch to the larger striped sunflower seeds, which have shells that are more difficult for house sparrows to open. And if you put out, oh, you know, I I used to think my dad was cheap, and now I realize he was just frugal because I have become him. (laughs) And so cheap stuff, always you look at things and say, uh, even in the grocery aisle, you know, they have uh, 147 different kinds of ketchups. And I say, well, this one's like a dollar cheaper than that one. Maybe it's better. And and in a lot of cases, it's not. And I think sometimes it's we get what we're used to and we become more used to it so when we try to save a little bit and go down it isn't always the best results but cheap bird seed is isn't economical it it doesn't have enough active ingredients if we thought of it as a medicine or something it wouldn't have enough active ingredients because it has too much filler uh, things that birds don't eat so you will get a lot of house sparrows if you put those things out. And I know I, I say that it seems like every other week I say that Milo, the stuff that looks mm-hmm. like BBs, it's just not good. Stuff doesn't eat it. Another uh, filler that's less common, I guess, would be wheat. We don't have things that do that. I chewed wheat when I was a kid because it was sort of like gum. I guess we were easily entertained <laughs> or easily fooled. But it's uh, those cheap bird seeds, just uh, they aren't good, and they don't give you the experience that you want to get from feeding them, and it certainly doesn't give the birds what they want. You know, that, that but, Milo reminds me of radish seeds. It kind of looks just like that, doesn't it? It's excellent. Yeah, that's what they look like. And well, it's do you sorghum. think, would they eat radish seeds? Would that be beneficial or not really? <laughs> I'm just curious. You know, I don't know. Uh, I know there's uh, certainly some things that, uh, insects and gr- worms and things that like to eat my radishes from time to time. Yeah. But I don't know if they eat the radish seeds. Radish seeds are really good, too. I like those They are? Stuff. Seriously? Yeah. Oh, Seeds? gosh, yeah. Really? Oh, well, sure. I guess I'll have something Take new to chew to on. Take them to the movie next time <laughs> and sit there and eat radish <laughs> oh, seeds okay. instead of popcorn. <laughs> oh, thanks for the tip, There's, Al. <laughs> sure. There's, before the snow kind of melted, I mean, we still have a lot of snow, but, but for the we haven't had any fresh snow because it's just, uh, and I'm all right with that, but a skunk bulldozed snow. And I saw its tracks, and it has short legs and a low body. So it's like a low rider if it was a car. And its feet left small pits in the snow. And striped skunks avoid the colder spells of winter by slowing their metabolism and entering into a state of torpor. 
T-O-R-P-O-R, inside their dens, and they have been found cohabitating with possums and raccoons just for warmth and because maybe areas where housing isn't readily available. Do possums have a bad sense of smell is what I want to know is why they're cohabiting. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I think it seems like possums, one of their best senses is their their nose is working all the time. They don't see very well, but they, they find food, uh, it seems like, a lot just by smell. Well, that's how they find uh, their their cohabitants then. <laughs> I guess that's right. Oh. I guess when you're uh, out, when it's a night maybe 15 below or something, you're probably not really caring who you're spending time with. You just want to be warm. Uh, this trail in the snow was likely made by a male skunk in search of a mate, and male skunks will travel as much as two and a half miles in the night looking for love in all the right or wrong places. Uh, my wife and I have been watching Audubon's Row, Audubon's Row Sanctuary's crane camera. It's in Gibbon, Nebraska, and that's near Kearney, and this it's a great cam. It features spectacular views of the Sandhill Crane migration along the Platte River. It it pans a five-mile stretch of the river, and they say there's up to 200,000 cranes there in that five-mile stretch at the height of migration. And each crane will stay all around three weeks once they arrive there. And the best viewing times are early morning and evening. And if you just go to either explore.org or National Audubon Society crane camera, any of these things, you will find this. And again, the morning and uh, evenings are the best, early morning and evening are the best times. And it's amazing, the sound. And you'll hear the, the normal sandhill cranes, and then you'll hear kind of a squeaky little sound in there. And that's the, the young ones from last year who haven't, uh, haven't gotten their voice yet. But it's a wonderful thing to see. You will see an eagle fly over. You'll see, of course, Canada geese and mallards beyond number. But you'll see a lot of other ducks. I was looking at the uh, cattails and things. There were red-winged blackbird males just perched everywhere on territory. So it was a, it's a, just a delightful thing to see. Uh, Jim of Mankato wrote, My friend Sparky asked me to email you. He's not an Internet kind of guy. <laughs> he has noticed the spring skunk smell most mornings, though he hasn't seen any out and about. He, thanks, Jim. Yeah, it's certainly... a. Whether you like it or not, it is a definite sign of spring. Uh, Tom Jessen of St. Peter said, I've been reading John James Audubon, The Making of an American by Richard Rhodes. I've been familiar with one of his classic paintings for most of my life, but what I read last week made my skin crawl. Uh, if you know TJ, uh, things that would make his skin crawl, that uh, that's worth <laughs> listening to when he says that, because he, he's out there uh, with uh, what a lot of people would call creepy crawlies and mm-hmm. things like that would, that probably make a lot of people's skin crawl, but not TJ's. Uh, TJ goes on, the two Chuck Wills widows he depicted harassing a harlequin snake by opening their mouths and emitting a strong hissing murmur He wrote that he believed the snake to be quite harmless, but in fact the snake he drew was a coral snake, a dangerously venomous American relative of the cobra, distinguished by yellow bands touching red. If he handled it, and he probably did, he was lucky to have survived. 
So thanks, TJ. I've, yeah, I've read that book. I, I enjoyed it. I, I, I've been an Audubon member for a long time, so I, sh- I feel a need to add this, that the Audubon Society has been considering the Audubon name because of all the things that came out about John James Audubon. And I got this from the, it says, uh, after careful consideration, the board of directors of the National Audubon Society elected to retain our name. The name has come to represent so much more than the work of one person, but a broader love of birds and nature and a nonpartisan approach to conservation. We must reckon with the racist legacy of John James Audubon and embody our equity, diversity, inclusion, and belonging values in all that we do. In doing so, we will ensure that Audubon stands for an inclusive future in which we unite diverse coalitions to protect birds and the places they need. And I know uh, oh, I have several friends that are, are not happy about this, but you know, I, I guess I'm all right. When I think of the Audubon Society, I don't really think of John James Audubon. I think of the people that are members of Audubon or maybe the Rose Sanctuary in Gimmon, Nebraska, and I think of those kind of things. Uh, Gunnar Berg of Albert Lee, he said, we are still in the lower Rio Grande Valley in Texas, staying in a small apartment in Estero Grande Resort and Golf Club. There are virtually no birds in the valley. Keith Hacklin, Keith is a uh, common friend of Gunnar's and I, uh, Keith Hacklin maintains it is drought, and everything will be better when it rains. Drought, the Falcon Dam is at 19%, and they're tearing up habitat and building crap houses like there is no tomorrow. Not certain what they will drink. I think he's living in a dream. I am sad there are still water birds on South Padre, and we tend to go down there when the temps are in the 90s. 100 degrees two days ago, but spring break is on. Uh, Chuck Brosty of, uh, and Chuck, it might be Brosty, B-R-O-S-T-E. Uh, I've heard from Chuck for a long time, and still uh, I think I got Chuck right. Um, swans and Canada geese and coyotes. It's proof we can't ruin everything even when we try. Encouraging. Heard from Susan Wistie. Uh, Susan lives in Duluth now, said, Right now with heavy snow falling on Duluth, I have a morning dove taking shelter in one of my spruce trees. There are some who overwinter here, but this is the first I've seen this year. I hope it survives. I'm wondering if it'll uh, survive this challenging, to say the least, winter with piles of snow above my head. Uh, Vicki Laroon said South. she visited South Padre Island, so maybe she was there at the same time Gunnar Berg was. Uh, she sent me lovely photos of ibises, herons, and grackles. And I uh, told Vicky, I bet she got her, saw her share of grackles, because grackles are everywhere down in Texas. I love seeing the ibises, so thank you for those lovely photos. Elizabeth Closemore said, We love winter and all the fresh snow here in Washington County. Oddly, I have two ravens croaking and calling across the pasture nearby woods. Also, the morning doves have started to mourn. Diedrich Ben saw a merlin in Mauer County. Uh, Dave Bartke saw a swamp sparrow in Steele County. 
Doug Keezer saw a eastern screech owl in Lesseur County. Bob Williams saw a merlin in Lesseur County. And Paul Jancher saw a western meadowlark in Faribault County. So things are moving around, things are changing. And uh, we got a message from our friend John in New Ulm. Yeah, we did. A very sad message. You know, John's been a faithful listener of KMSU for for a long, long time and always used to have a joke or something. And lately he's been going back and forth to Andover with his dad, who's been very ill. So he has some sad news to report. He said that his father uh, passed away on March 7th, and so we want to send our condolences with him. And he also sent a picture of his dad. His dad knew a lot of great people. His dad was an artist. He uh, sent a picture of his dad with uh, Tony Bennett and another with Andy Williams. And he said, sad news, March 7th, uh, late at night, he says about an hour after he visited his dad, he passed away in the Anoka Care Center. He said, this isn't fun news, but if you want, share with Al on the show. So, uh, John, we really uh, are, are sorry to hear that and know how much your dad meant and how much he meant to a lot of people. Yeah, and uh, my condolences, John. It's uh, <clears throat> it's um, sad business, and it seems uh, winters are. I don't know. Maybe we have more time to notice all the the passings of of people. <clears throat> it. Uh, I went to a funeral uh, last week of. Kelly Peterson. Kelly's from Geneva, and uh, she was uh, a nurse at the uh, an oncology nurse at the cancer center in Mayo. And I I knew her before that because she married a friend of mine. But um, you know we have those people that we lean on as we go through mm-hmm. life. And Kelly is. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the cancer center, and she was one of those people I leaned on. And uh, died unexpectedly, and uh, I'll uh, miss her. And John, I don't know your dad, or didn't know your dad, but I'll miss him too. Uh, just got a note from somebody said, "Why do birds throw seeds out of a feeder?" Yeah, <laughs> and mine, uh, mine here are morning doves. They fly in there and they get on the feeder and they just—I uh, don't know—they throw stuff out and then they. Uh, Oh, they have a bonding dispute or another kind of argument, and the seed just flies all over. And I love seeing them, but I wish they were better behaved sometimes. Well, Al, just, uh, did, did you ever think why do little kids like throw their toddlers throw their food on the floor because maybe it's fun? Yeah, I I remember a uh, cousin was it peas? I think it was peas he didn't like, <laughs> and they had a. They had a table, and the old uh, kitchen tables had those metal legs. Yep. And he could pull a little uh, top off, a little cap off one, oh, and he'd no. put the peas <laughs> in that leg. Oh. And uh, it was a big family, so I guess the parents didn't have time to pay attention to what everybody was doing, but they were supposed to clean their plate. That was that was the deal. And he said it worked pretty good till after a certain period of time, it, the stuff kind of began to smell oh, yeah. in the leg. So then he got he the smell <clears throat> narked on him, and he was he was caught in what he's up to. You know, when birds do this, some of it could be accidental. They could just be, you know, trying to find a, a proper footing on uh, a feeder. 
I'm thinking platform feeders here. And it could be that they're discarding the hulls. So they've eaten the seeds and they're just spitting out the hulls. So the most of them do that. And that's uh, much of what I see under mine uh, are empty hulls. And it, um, well, it could be a bird in there and it could be searching for their favorite seeds or seeds without a shell. My brother Donald did not like peppers. <laughs> My mom would make um, hot dish and, of course, they pretty much all had peppers. And he'd just go through with his fork and find all the bits of pepper and then put them off to the side and then eat the rest of it. So that's probably what the birds could be doing also. They want to find their favorite seeds or seeds without a shell. Well, Al, my and, son, my my, uh, he's eight. Well, he's eighteen now, but he, whenever he has chicken noodle soup, and you know, a lot of times chicken noodle soup will have peas and carrots. Takes out all the peas and carrots and celery, and uh, just has the broth basically with a few little chunks of of chicken in oh, it. So you know. Gosh. <laughs> I remember my mom. Parents tell the stories on you, and she said, I have a niece who's the, I'm the tail ender of the family, and my niece was the first of the next generation, and we're the same age. So we're eating chicken noodle soup. We ate chicken noodle soup a lot, and uh, she was not, she was from town, and I was from country, so she'd come out and stay on the farm with us, and I told her that it was made of chicken heads, and that's why it was called chicken noodle. So then, of course, she would not eat a chicken noodle soup, no matter how much my mom would tell her, well, don't listen to him, you know, he doesn't know what he's talking about, or he's just doing that to bug you, and and it worked, and I was pretty proud of that for many years. Well, I forgot to mention, he also takes out all the noodles, too, so FYI. Oh, my gosh. <clears throat> now he's gone too far. <laughs> yeah. well, you know, broth and I love chicken chunks, I guess, are, are fine if you're him. Oh, I love noodles. My mom would make those big flour, thick oh, flour yeah. noodles. And, oh, they were so good. I always, I tried to make a sandwich out of them once, <laughs> and it really wasn't bad. It was a little messy. I, some of the birds that we'll be seeing now that we coming to our feeders will be native sparrows and a lot of them will be on the ground, and they scratch by habit. So they feed in a platform feeder, as they do on the ground, when they do this double scratch to unearth goodies from under leaves or whatever's down there. Uh, Also, birds might toss out milo or wheat. Again, those are the fillers they don't like, and it's... uh, Oh, you know, we get, what do we get? Parsley. Sometimes we get that on our dish. And when they used to do that at the local cafe here, none of the old boys ate that. They just said, oh, what is that? You know, it was too close to a salad for them, so they're not going to eat that. They didn't eat salads, really. Uh, They could throw out, the birds could be throwing out wet, spoiled, moldy, old, uh, germinating, or poor quality seeds. So there's many reasons that they're throwing them out there. Uh, sometimes we could say, well, it's just fussiness. They don't want to have to work opening one when they can find seeds that are, are hullless. So, and that's probably some, some truth to that. Uh, when are white-tailed deer antlers fully grown? Probably, oh gosh, mid to late August, I would guess, is when they have the, the, they're done growing. And a buck, 
he probably sports his largest rack when he's, I don't know, four and a half to nine and a half years old. It depends on the genetics and nutrition and things. Five to seven years probably is typical when the bucks get there. And I know that because uh, I'm, I've talked to deer hunters who have told me that. I went deer hunting once in my life and got up in the deer stand, and I, I don't think my heart was in it. A chickadee landed right near me, and I spent more time watching him, and I watched the deer walk by. Of course, I didn't shoot or anything. And then afterwards, they said, boy, we didn't see any deer. And me and my big mouth, I said, boy, I saw this beautiful buck. And I said, well, did you shoot at it? And I said, well, I forgot. So uh, <laughs> they didn't ask me to go, didn't ask me to go hunting with them anymore. And I, I guess I'm all right with that. It was fun being in deer stand. I just enjoyed it there. And I know, uh, I, I bet some of them fell asleep in that deer stand when the sun comes up and it's kind of cool and the sun hits you. I can't imagine they all stayed awake. And that buck thanked you. That buck thanked you dearly, by the way. <laughs> yeah, he, he was. It was, uh, you know, I, I tell everybody I saw Bambi when I was, during my formative years, and that just ruined me forever <laughs> being a deer hunter, I think. I just, they shot Bambi's money. It was just, it was one of those things. Uh, do, why do deer yard up? Yeah, it, I hear yard up here. That's what I've always called it. And other folks have. What does that mean? They say yarding. Yeah, deer are yarding. I don't know what that means. And it's. It's another term used when deer congregate in one area and it demonstrates oh. the power of food. And it occurs during times of severe cold and decreasing food sources. Okay. And common places to see deer yard up are south and probably east-facing slopes, agricultural fields with waste grain. I see a lot of them out in fields now. Uh, Late-season food plots, cedar thickets, uh, under my bird feeders and anywhere else they can find shelter from the elements and food. Uh, I read a, a study saying that deer reduce their food intake during the winter by 30% and their activity by 50%. So they, uh, they just take it a little easier. So I've got an a, observation, a text here from someone sure. who wanted to share their observation. This is for Al. I've been seeing some of new birds at my feeder lately. Still haven't got a book on identifying local birds yet, so I knew I could ask you. One new bird, there's two of them, almost as big as a robin, black or dark brown, kind of a long, light-colored beak, which is straight and sharply pointed. This is from Jeff in Janesville. Hey, Jeff, great to hear from you. They sound like starlings because oh. they change their uh, plumage and their bill becomes more yellow as we get to spring. So I would think that would be it, Jeff, and I am perfectly ready and happy to be wrong, but that's what it sounds like to me, and that's the one that rides my deer around the yard here oh. is a starling. <laughs> so they're they're. I think they're beautiful birds. Again, they're not everybody's most favorite bird. The other one is a common grackle. They mm. will have a long bill, but they have a really long tail. And those would be the two common ones that would be there now, Jeff. So I hope one of those uh, is your bird. He also commented, he said, I also saw a sparrow-sized bird with bright crimson chest and head. I think you said earlier this winter it might be a tree sparrow? If it's got crimson on there, Jeff, it'd be a house finch. It looks very much like a sparrow. 
Uh, it's a finch. The males have uh, red. Some is much redder than others. Uh, some have a kind of an orangish red, but they're beautiful birds, and I'm seeing quite a few of them in the yard now. Purple finches is an- another bird that has those kind of colors. They look like a house sparrow or a sparrow that have been dipped in raspberry juice or wine. But I haven't seen any of those in my yard now for quite a while. But con- house finches are very common now, and they're beautiful singers, and they're the ones that love to nest in our window boxes and hanging baskets, and I just love seeing them. The last question I have, Karen, is do mothballs keep mice away? It's, oh, and they have in parentheses, snakes. Uh-huh. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's a myth that mothballs repel snakes, squirrels, and mice. Uh, scattering mothballs is an ineffective and can be damaging to the environment. You know, kids or pets could eat them. Uh, exposure to mothballs vapors it's not healthy so if you can smell the mothballs you're breathing in a pesticide we have to remember that so i guess no would be my answer to that hey thanks everybody uh appreciate you uh sitting on the front porch with us you'd think winter would have run out of its snowflakes by now uh, we'll see the joy of spring was tempered a little bit by an hour's less sleep Uh, My neighbor Crandall, who claims to have lost his ambition, but he doesn't care enough to look for it, refuses to change any timepiece. It refuses to change itself. Me, I replaced a battery, and I changed a tire on my bride's car while winter reloaded. I didn't revel in it. I'm not a, a... really a mechanic of even the whitest definition of mechanic i wouldn't qualify for it but i did it all without injury or police backup when i was a pup i knew a guy who drove a junker that had been new when lewis and clark drove it during their expedition it burned so much oil he never changed oil he just kept adding more oil when you think about it, or at least when I think about it, car problems are minor problems. So may all your troubles be automotive. Remember, Heartland is well worth driving past. Thanks for listening. Do something wild today. Get out there and look at a bird. And Karen, thank you so much. I enjoyed your company as always. And John of New Alm, we're thinking of you. Yeah, thanks a lot, Al. We appreciate you, and we'll chat with you next uh, next week. All right? Look forward to it. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.